Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and uh, we are on Aaron Judge watch as we are taping this. He remains at 60 home runs two away from uh, holding the American League record by himself. And it's, uh, you know, both of us in the New York area, it's really been an exciting couple of weeks, an exciting month here as he uh, chases history here. Yeah. And if we can't go to the games ourselves, we have to figure out which service to watch it on. But that's a whole <laughs> other subject. But, yeah, uh, it, it's, certainly- it's, it's been quite a week between the local RSN, the Yes Network and national carriers, Fox and the ESPN. And, uh, you know, as we're taping this on uh, Friday, the, the 23rd tonight's games on apple tv plus which is causing no shortage of consternation but again exciting stuff here and uh well beyond just aaron judge uh, a lot of things to ha- discuss across the uh, sports industry this week got major news out of phoenix with the uh, suns and mercury Apple continues to make major waves in the uh, major North American sports landscape. We're getting ready for the start of the new National Hockey League season. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Patrick Craig's, uh, one of the smartest guys out there in sports media, real thought leader in the space. We're going to have a conversation with him and break down a number of industry trends. So stay tuned for that conversation. And Chris and I will be back on the other side, break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Patrick Craigs, principal of strategic advisory firm Craigs Media. Craigs, over a career spanning more than a quarter of a century, has established himself as one of the foremost experts and thought leaders in sports media, particularly in this current era of historic transformation and disruption. He now advises a battery of clients that span a wide range of conferences and leagues, networks, private equity firms, and marketing agencies, delving into a wide range of areas, including rights negotiations, business operations, and programming strategy. Prior to forming his own shop, Craig spent more than a dozen years at Fox Sports, rising to senior vice president of programming, research, and content strategy, and he played a key role in managing network relationships with key entities such as the National Football League, Major League Baseball, and NASCAR. Patrick, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Eric. Great to be here. So just get obviously a quick summation of your career journey here, but uh, from your perspective, what has this journey been like here? You, you've got a military background and now you've been doing the sports media for, as I said, a long time here, but uh, sort of what got you going on this and where do you sort of see yourself in the overall ecosystem now? Well, where I see myself today is that I'm, I'm often a facilitator or a somebody who provides some clarity right a large portion of what i do is advising investors of different types whether it be on the evolution of the media landscape or how you allocate capital in the context of that there are traditional media relationships i have many of them with friends or people i respect but i basically am a facilitator and a provider of insights which is very different than my job i did that at fox sports but i also managed and was an operator and was making trains run on time and doing all those other things so it's a much more intellectual more quieter experience than it used to be uh, obviously being in the middle of of all the action at fox sports there's always something going on that requires your attention usually live and so it's it's been interesting journey but it's 
been very rewarding, and I really enjoy it. And particularly working with the investors who have made a better uh, finance. Uh, I understand finance much in a much more strategic perspective than I used to, and it's complementary to my other skills. So I feel like it's a real good growth journey, and I've really enjoyed it. Patrick, when you talk about advising investors, is it companies or or PE firms that want to acquire assets in the space? What's the kind of engagement that you have with these PE firms? So PE, venture capital, US investment bank are some of my clients. You know, it's largely about these folks know an awful lot, right? What they don't know is this 10% this opacity index, right? The media business and the sports media business is a very popular, but very small place, right? And so information is hard to come by about how things actually pan out. So when it comes to how media is evolving to be distributed, to add digital platforms to the mix, there's a lot of outside-in looking and suggestion, in particular from Wall Street analysts, many who are public figures. And so investors are looking for, you know, what are the folks inside the system really looking to do? They're clearly, sometimes the narrative publicly on financial news networks or papers are, well, these people are stupid because they're not getting X. Right? Well, no one's stupid on any side of the table in the system. You guys know that people are doing things for a reason. They may be mistaken. They may be taking different levels of risk in different places, but nobody's stupid. And so, you know, why four years ago was Disney not investing heavily in streaming? Why was it allowing Netflix to write big checks to it, which forced Netflix, by the way, to borrow tons of money that now is a problem for them? And the answer was they weren't quite sure that streaming would be profitable. Turned out that was correct. Streaming is not profitable. But you know, four or five years ago, after I was done with the Invivo project, you know, the narrative really was that uh, the established system was literally going to fall apart and die like oh, uh, the next day. And streaming was going to pop up and it was going to work perfectly and be cheap and be easy to access. And, and nobody in the established media side knew how to do it. That's not to knock on the new people, but it was really, that was the narrative. And many sophisticated investors didn't buy that, right? So I started providing some insight into that, right? Then my research background, where I really started, I became, became a programmer, but I really at my core, I'm a researcher. So I spoke their language. I was able to do projects and work with them on it. And in the context of that, Everything from helping a client figure out whether they should enter or exit an investment in Formula One to advising some folks who were looking at perhaps entering into the Pac-12's rights auction of several years ago to debt for you know some pretty important sports media distribution assets. These are the I provide a certain amount of insight into how it works, who the people are, and what I think is happening in the context of media distribution. By the way, I think we can take the zero-sum narrative that for a long time pushed on Wall Street and the media completely off the table. And it's, it's a more incremental evolution to include the Amazon uh, numbers and figures of Thursday Night Football. It's incremental to the current system. It's evolving, but we're not going to have any pirouette to 100% streaming anytime soon. That's just not going to happen given the economic realities of how everybody pays their bills. You mentioned the uh, Amazon and the Thursday night football, and I did want to turn our attention to the NFL here. And obviously far and away, the uh most valuable programming in all of American media here and new set of domestic uh, rights renewals last year and the strong got stronger here. But looking forward, how do you think they're sort of set up now, particularly now with Amazon articulating itself exclusively on Thursday night? And what is your sense of how the Sunday ticket and own media asset sale is going to turn out? 
Well, regarding Amazon Thursday Night Football, the viewing figures are a strategic success, right? But they validate what we already knew. Streaming was growing. We knew something like this was going to happen. We didn't know when. I thought it might be a little further away. It's important to know that when you back out the 13 million number, take out the broadcast television affiliates, take out out of home, which is direct TV in bars and restaurants, some of it's inside home, by the way, I won't go into the of that, but back out NFL Plus, back out Twitch, because Twitch was always there, but it was small. We're closer to 10. But that's still, nobody's ever done anything close to that. So I myself was hoping for 8 million for them. I was prepared for five because I just didn't really know what we were, you know, I didn't really know. This is a major proof of viability, right? Now, the problem is, or not the problem, but the reality is, is that no one's ever done anything close to this with any other type of sport anywhere. Because if somebody had, we'd know. Because there are major sports streaming on networks, some of them exclusively, some of them simulcast, but we never get any of that information. So this is um, kind of the tip of the spear, cutting edge, very tippy top. But what it does is it proves that streaming can today in certain circumstances produce strategic reach and that is very very important is it going to replace the reach we find from all the other platforms today no could it do it in 10 years perhaps what i would suggest is that will happen is more an evolution of what it means to have reach right and uh, how reach manages into expansive business plans such as amazon or even an apple where the business is not necessarily driven so much by advertising, not that you don't want to get that revenue, but by a larger strategic concern, video as marketing, right? Instead of a, a kind of an accounting profit center, it serves some other larger purpose, right? Prime subscriptions, proof of business for Amazon web services, in the case of Apple device, a sales or a, some internal method that's not tied to what we would traditionally say in the advertising side. And, and really, in reality, it hasn't been that way on the established side for a long time. When it comes to sports, uh, subscriptions have been paying the bills for the best sports for or there's 70% of the value. They've been doing that for 20 years. So um, advertising is important, very important, in some cases, billions of dollars, but it's not the most important revenue stream, even in the established system. So I think it's a major step forward. I would expect the numbers to taper back some, but if they finish the season at 9 million, 8 million viewers on an average viewer minute basis, that's a strategic accomplishment for them. And it paves the way and validates streaming platforms. It really probably validates, if you take in context, the entire NFL week one and week two weekends, the cast model where you know the broadcast numbers were off the hook for NFL on Fox and 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 CBS and Monday Night Football, we're looking at 20 million plus viewers for all those platforms. Toss in Amazon at you know 13 or to 10 pure on Prime, and that's an amazing you know figure. And and if you think about it, all the distribution platforms when it comes to the NFL are firing on all cylinders across every board. Now the trick is to make it work for the other sports, right? And and we haven't seen that yet, but I would expect to start seeing more. I'll add something else that's interesting. To, to get to this position where this number would be accepted in the marketplace, Amazon did something that people were saying could not possibly be true. They embraced Nielsen Media Research's measurement system, the old established system, which makes it easy to compare to, to established partners. So uh, Nielsen validates the viewing. 
it's universally transacted upon. And I think if anybody had Nielsen Media Research as the future of streaming measurement on their bingo card, they're a liar, unless you're somebody like me who's been saying that for years, because I understood Nielsen's centrality to the system, right? And so what you're going to see now, I think, is pressure from others on other streaming platforms to adopt that measurement, because now you can kind of get a look universally at how things are working. So you know, looking ahead, pay attention to this exclusive game on ESPN Plus coming up here uh, soon, NFL game. That's going to be very interesting to compare the platforms because we now know what an amazing platform like Amazon, right, or partner like Amazon combined with the most valuable and important media content maybe in the world, the NFL can do. Now let's see what it does on a different platform. I think it's going to be very interesting. Patrick, switching gears to the NBA, those national rights are coming up here over the next couple of years. What do you expect is going to happen in terms of the types of companies that are going to bid for those rights and where those rights fees may go? I think that's a great question. You know, I, I'm going to give you an, an answer that you know very well. Backend rights are, are super going to super going to determine this. And I know that firsthand because our attempt to participate with the NBA at Fox while I was there was thwarted by the enormously strong end rights that ESPN and Turner had. We were basically stopped by it. The property never got out to a full bid, really, because ESPN and Turner told the NBA they would pay any price to match it. They were not going to, even if a third party like us figure out a way to enter the system without hurting them in any way, they didn't view it that way. And they would use their strong back-end rights to simply exclude us. So that's number one. Back-end rights will be very, very important and determine who kind of controls. If you have back-end rights, as you know, strong back-end rights, you really control the table. I mean, you don't, you control the property. So that said, I think everyone would like to try to take a look at it. And I think in a couple of years, it'll be great for the NBA because they're going to have more real data to work with on the streaming platforms. At the very least, I would suggest that we're going to see streaming on NBA of NBA games on, on platforms. The question is, will it be with their established partners, Turner and, and ESPN, or will it be on a totally different kind of partner like an Apple or an Amazon that derives almost all of its revenue from non-traditional media businesses, right? And because ESPN has a platform, they walked away from the Big Ten rights largely because they weren't going to be able to acquire any content for that platform will almost assuredly build a you know a eurosport like discovery platform for streaming they will probably have an option to give the nba streaming and if you take a look at the nhl deal the nh deal nhl deal completely validated by the current system would to include streaming on espn plus so to me I think everyone would want to have a piece of this the question is who's going to really get the opportunity to do it and it's not like the nba is unhappy with turner and espn at all. So my answer is I think the rights stay those two entities, but it's possible they could get unlocked, but it would be interesting to see that. But we will see streaming. I just think it's going to be with the current partners they have. One of the other big macro trends in this space is the betting companies becoming much more of their own in-house content vehicles. And certainly foremost among them is uh, this new linear and OTT network that FanDuel has put together. Looking forward, do you anticipate entities such as FanDuel becoming serious bidders for top tier rights? You know, I, I don't. I, I don't see them going after the top rights. That doesn't mean that they won't have content and they won't be a content supplier. Look, the, the rebrand of TVG you know, if you think about it, it's it's a terrific idea because TVG is all gaming and 
rebanding it as FanDuel opens it up to other things. It's still going to be largely a horse racing, you know, kind of betting platform network, but lacing in all the other live events that they've accumulated, you know, from Asia and other places makes them a viable live distributor. But most importantly, it makes an argument um, inside that old established pay TV system, which still has 70 you know, million some odd homes in it. You know, if you're looking to attract gamers, if you're looking to attract new subscribers for your betting platform, the best way to do it is to be right where the sports viewing is most of it, right? At least the organic surfing kind of sports system. I mean, the new streaming system is great, but you know, people have commented, you can't get around anything else, right? And that may be helping the viewing right now because people aren't going anywhere. Certainly not week one why people were checking things out. But the truth of the matter is that circulation set in the old system was very useful in finding content. And by rebranding this channel, perhaps making an argument to distributors that they should move off of, you know, I have direct TV because it still remains a very good platform for sports. You know, they're down there in the 600s with some of the other sports channels, the secondary sports channels. Make an argument they should moved up with the ESPNs and the FS1s of the world and people organically find them and find the betting advice show and things like that. And, and they're in that business, right? I mean, FanDuel, Patty Power, Flutter has has scale advantages in actual execution on betting in a global way. They're a public company. They are profitable. They have real dog free cash. You know, it just made a lot of sense to me to do it. Now, that said, do I see them trying to get into the NBA rights? I just can't see it. I think they're going to smart enough to know that they are part of the sports media ecosystem, but they have a specific niche. And there's so much room for them to roll up so much of it given their profitability, their management, and their worldwide reach, that getting into large-scale tier one rights probably feels out of scope. And that's my personal opinion, but I think if you ask some people at FanDuel, it probably echoes that. Patrick, another uh, important part of the sports ecosystem and, and media ecosystem is the regional sports networks. There has been some discussion, some published reports recently that maybe the the sports leagues, the MLB, NBA, NHL, might even consider owning what is now the Sinclair regional networks. What, what do you think about that? What do you think is happening there in that situation? Well, you know, RSNs are networks that just won't die. Everybody's been trying to kill those things forever. And they have real problems. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, you know, you go back and read articles from five years ago. People are like, well, you know, Amazon, you know, Amazon is going to distribute all the RSNs. And well, we're still not there yet, even though we have all these problems. Um, Sinclair has a specific problem. They have a classic, you know, they have a classic business problem. They their EBITDA for that unit is declining and they have a debt service number that is fixed and they are going to have problems meeting it. So, you know, in that context, that presents opportunities. I'm sure the leagues would like to own part of an entity that controlled this has always been um, something they've wanted to do. The problem is the leagues themselves don't have their own organic economics. It's not like the like like the NBA can walk up and give you $750 million. The NBA doesn't have $750 million to write an investment with. So it becomes more complicated. They need partners. But uh, and one of the issues with the NBA and the NHL and, and MLB and Sinclair is that they haven't really had a time doing business together. Regional sports networks are going to continue to exist and they're going to continue to exist inside the pay TV ecosystem because the direct to consumer business for them cannot replace the current economics that the pay TV system gives them so that they can make payroll. 
there is, I, I mentioned it earlier, pirouette to DTC. It really doesn't exist for regional sports networks. The Cleveland Cavaliers get $80 million a year. If they were to go not, if they were to exclusively distribute themselves direct consumer, they would not replace the economics they get from the pay TV distributor that make that possible. They would not make payroll. They would not make payroll. So it's a kind of a bit of an existential crisis. The RSN system has to continue, but does it have to continue under Sinclair's ownership and Sinclair's gives itself a bad financial structure? So the leagues are looking at this as an opportunity to be a participant ownership, probably with a private equity, somebody who comes in and sees the value, understands that the current system is not a growth business by any means, but also under the proper debt load management is profitable system. It also must continue. The leagues know it must continue. While they continue to experiment with new forms of distribution, DT may not be unprofitable forever. Right now, as a blanket rule, we're seeing everywhere, DTC streaming is ruinously unprofitable. Will it be like that forever? I, you know, you're Disney and you're losing $500 million one quarter. The next quarter, you're going to lose $750 million. You know, that's tough even for Disney. Right? I mean, that's tough for anyone. Those characteristics of the streaming economics on a standalone basis are universal. They're near universal, except at Amazon and Apple, who are using it as a marketing expense. So I do believe that the leagues would love to have a part at a seat of the table of a new entity that owns some of these RSNs. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. This is an opportunity to do it. They're going to need partners. But that doesn't mean that eventually there won't be a roadmap to them owning a majority of it, such as the Big Ten Conference did with their channel, right, when Fox did that deal. Years ago, Bob Thompson and Larry Jones and those guys did that deal. So I do think they're interested. I think they're they're saying that publicly. The whole thing's going to be resolved, um, I believe, sooner rather than later. I do believe that Sinclair will 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 have investors come in, relieve the debt. Probably it won't end up in bankruptcy. But even if it ends up in bankruptcy, the bondholders are unified behind them. If they end up owning the company, they're happy because they can restructure it. And they know that if the debt load's proper, the businesses are profitable. Like I said, they're not growth businesses, but they're profitable. And then you manage the businesses and wait for the new digital system to come together better. And when it does, then these RSNs have a place there. But I've said publicly before, they're hothouse flowers. The digital distribution system is so unprofitable because it's unbundled. We used to break, we wanted to break up the bundle, bundle, broken it up, and now it's really unprofitable system. It's got to rebundle, but it can't look like the old system. And I don't know what the system looks like. All I can tell you is it has to have some elements of that. RSNs can be a part of that, but they go last, not first. They are hothouse, especially, say, you know, it's the Boston Red Sox. It's one team, right? And even with that, you need tons of other stuff to watch the Boston Red Sox. That's not changing anytime soon. So So within that roadmap, carrying that forward here, your points are all very well taken here, but the tribalism that is so inherent to sports, that's really sort of the core that first and foremost, you know, many fans are fans of their teams. Is there some other way to sort of take that tribalism and within sort of that framework that you just described, turn that into a viable business? You mean like concerning the regional sports networks Correct. and things like that? Yeah. Um, look, the problem isn't that fans are engaged, right? If you take a look at the viewing RSNs, they remain some of the strongest options in all their, like, you know, it was true 10 years ago in St. Louis that Cardinals games on a Tuesday night in St. Louis 
on on at the time Fox Sports Midwest would outrate the combined gross rating points of the broadcast television networks. They still do that, right? Fans are engaged with these pay TV platforms. The hardcore fans, right? The ones who are, care the most are engaged. And, that, and that's what I'm speaking to. Yeah. How you give them an option that's affordable, right? Because bundled, these RSNs are six bucks a month, right? But unbundled, the reason why the Bad Sports RSN is 20 bucks and the reason why Nesson is near 30 bucks is because that's the price of the channel if it's not bundled with other things with it that enable it to scale and force contracts upon people. So we've got to have some kind of system on the digital side that enables you to, if you choose to pick only an RSN, you're buying some other things as well, services maybe. I mean, broadband's a great example of one thing that gets bundled, but you come up with something else that's low cost but high margin to subsidize it and the video becomes marketing expense instead of the thing that has to carry the economic profitability of the bundle so we're we're not there yet the only way to get to a place where you could price the rsn properly and make money is to cut payrolls and i don't believe anyone suggested that yet patrick switching gears uh live golf has clearly gotten quite a bit of attention over the last several months uh but in terms of carriage on prominent media outlets, that really hasn't happened yet. What do you think is going to happen with Live Golf? Are they going to be able to get a major television or media deal done? And who would be the likely parties to do that deal with them? Yeah, I mean, like it seems like Live Golf is here to stay, even if it doesn't have a major media deal. I, they've just got too many important players over there. They're funded. They do need a media deal. They probably need one that encompasses a traditional reach, I think. But there's some networks that get taken off the board because of the relationship with the PGA. So this is, in the United States, this is a real problem for them. And so, you know, I've heard people say lately that Fox is going to get involved. I, I, I don't know that. And at what terms is everyone going to get involved? I do think that there'll be a home for them. I just don't know under what terms and where. And they may have to make some short-run sacrifices to build something for the long run. I would say that in the end, I think the PGA and Live probably have to find a way to coexist. There's probably more value for them to build together. And throw, throwing out the controversies, let's just talk about this strictly from a golf perspective, right? Because I understand there's a lot of sensitivities with this, and I recognize them, right? But you know, there's more value for them to create together because they're kind of different. And they could be theoretically compatible, but they have to learn to figure out how to live together. And, you know, you go back to IndyCar, right? And what happened to IndyCar in the, in the I guess it was, guys, like the, like the early mid-90s where yep. it split into two. Leagues. And it's just now recovering because it's one league again. You can either have IndyCar, all right, or you can have, or you can have something that looks more day in the NFL, right? It's something cooperative that comes together so they both can coexist. I do think that there's value incrementally for them to create if they allow each other to exist. Right now, it looks like it's you know a fight to the death. I either want any one of them wins because I don't think Liv's going anywhere and the PGA is not going anywhere either. So what are they going to do, right? The PGA is going to allow their players to continue to slowly migrate over there and Liv is going to be happy not being distributed and building a real business, you know, possibly that probably ends poorly. So I think it's a complicated issue. I don't know who's going to distribute Liv. I think it's complicated. 
And I think they'll get some kind of deal, but they may have to walk before they run. And meanwhile, the PGA is going to have to figure out how they reconcile themselves to this new reality because Liv isn't going anywhere. That's my personal opinion, but I think it's an informed one. Well, clearly just a ton uh, going on in and around the world of sports media. We could go on a lot further here, but uh, we'll wrap it up there for now. And uh, we want to thank Patrick Craig's from Craig's Media for spending this time with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Love the questions and thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. We're back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Patrick Craigs from Craigs Media again for spending that time with us and turning our attention now to the news of the week. And, uh, you know, last week in my look ahead, I had mentioned, uh, you know, keep your eye on the Phoenix Suns. More is coming here. And boy, howdy, that did not take long. That did not take long at all. Just a few days later, we got news that Robert Sarver, the uh, owner of the NBA's Phoenix Suns and WNBA's Phoenix Mercury, he has begun a process to sell the team both teams. And this was really sort of an untenable situation here that, uh, you know, he had received the uh, the year-long suspension and the fine for his uh, racist and misogynistic comments and conduct and what he had done to sort of create a toxic culture there in the organizations. And, and really by the day, you know, there was outcry growing against uh, what had happened and what the league's response had been. We had had uh, the union upset, individual players upset, Sarver's fellow owners and the franchise is upset, sponsors threatening to walk. You know, this really, you know, what we've got now with the sale process here was essentially the only sort of logical outcome, the way things were trending, just was a little surprised to, you know, that this really just took just a matter of days as opposed to perhaps weeks or months. It happened pretty quickly, Eric, but there was a lot of public outcry. As we talked about last week, John Najafi, the second largest shareholder, came out with a statement urging him to resign. As you mentioned, a number of players came out. PayPal, one of the major sponsors of the team, apparently said that they were not going to renew. And those are just the things we're seeing out there publicly. publicly I'm, sure yeah. there was, I'm sure there was a lot of private conversations with whether it be owners or players or staffers. And so while I'm I'm not necessarily surprised at the decision, I'm I'm surprised it came so quickly. And uh, it will be a very interesting process now to see who is uh, the front runner to acquire this team over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, and there's a number of layers to this, and we'll sort of get into the what's next part of this in just a moment. But I do want to spend a quick moment on sort of the Adam Silver piece of this that, you know, somebody in his time as commissioner here, you know, coming up on a decade, uh, you know, it, it almost sort of for a long period of time was sort of almost the do no wrong Adam Silver. And this was one that was sort of being branded a bit of a misstep that he had sort of perhaps had misread the situation here. And there was sort of a question as to whether he sort of got bailed out by this decision. But in a certain sense, what I kind of personally take away is that this was a situation where all of those constituent stakeholders that you just mentioned, none of them really accepted the word of Adam Silver as the final sort of decree on this situation that there had been a league punishment. Yeah, Adam Silver had spoken to this at the conclusion of a board of governors meeting, and all these people said, no, that's not actually the final word on this, and we, we've got some say-so on this. And it was sort of an interesting sort of inflection point that we had not really seen that sort of resistance to really much of anything, again, publicly in the tenure of Adam Silver. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I would say I have a slightly nuanced view of that, which is I'm not sure Adam said that it was the right thing for Sarver to keep the team. In fact, once Sarver made the announcement, Adam said, I think this was the right call. I think the change here is important. I think, as I understood it, what Adam was saying was, look, he just didn't have the authority to kick him out, given what had happened. And ultimately, the other constituents in the ecosystem were free to express their views about it and create whatever pressure or whatever conversation they deemed necessary. And so at the end of the day, I think, you know, whether Adam made the right or wrong call in terms of his initial decision, I think he's going to be fine in terms of the outcome here, because at the end of the day, you know, that at least from the perspective of many of the constituents, the right uh, outcome has been achieved. All very fair again, but everything you've just described though, that's still a, you know, relative rarity here again in the, in the tenure of Adam. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It is. But I think that piece of it is going to be forgotten in two years when, or three months when there's a new owner and and we're beyond this. And I think Adam's tenure is going to be a lot of other things, including ultimately the decision or the, the execution of this change in, uh, in Phoenix. Yeah, and, and sort of let's take a look at that here because there's there's a lot happening there already, and this you know could be a, a really big deal on a number of levels here. That there are already a number of really big boldface names being thrown around as potential suitors for these franchises. Bob Iger, the former Disney chief executive, Jeff Bezos, uh, founder and and head of Amazon, Elon Musk, obviously with uh, SpaceX, and you know the number of other activities that he has going on. A lot of big names being sort of thrown out, whether or not that's sort of real you know, remains to be seen. Very, very likely that these franchises collectively will garner $2 billion, perhaps a lot more, perhaps even setting a record and getting past the you know 2.3 and change that uh, Joe Sy paid for the uh, Brooklyn Nets and, and those related assets. And this is a growing market. You've got a recently renovated arena. You've got a good team on the court. There's a lot of sort of, you know, you sort of take the Sarver situation, put it to the side for a moment. There's a lot of good things in and around the Suns and the Mercury and, and a lot of reasons to feel optimistic about wanting to be in on that situation here. So, you know, this could be a really interesting bidding race on a number of levels. I believe, Eric, this will be an incredibly buoyant group of companies or or individuals bidding here, not only for the reasons you mentioned on the Phoenix level, but also because the NBA is doing so well. It's a global brand. They've got their media rights deals coming up. It really is a pretty rare opportunity to be able to buy a controlling stake in a team. There's an ability also because of the NBA rules to finance the purchase much more so than, let's say, in the NFL. So there are a lot of reasons why I think you'll see a lot of bidders subject to if somebody like Bezos with enormous wealth comes out and says, I'm going to pay whatever it takes to buy it, that could discourage some people from putting their groups together and trying to kind of get, uh, you know, get, get lined up. But, but other than that exception, I do think this could be a situation where you have 10, 15, 20 viable bidders in the hunt. Yeah. And as unfortunate as the whole situation around Sarver and everything that he said and did, there is some historical parallels here in the sense that we've had prior tragic situations with a franchise where, you know, a new owner comes in and some, you know, real new achievements are are 
happen on the backs of that. And I'm thinking of things like the Dodgers coming out of bankruptcy, the unfortunate situation with Donald Sterling and the Clippers. You've had those new owners come in and take those franchises to previously unimaginable heights here. And again, you for all the reasons that we both described here, I think this Phoenix situation is set up with this new owner to come in and, and take this to a whole other level. Yeah, th- this will be a good situation once a new owner is installed and there's stability back in the situation. I do wonder whether, I mean, ultimately price matters, uh, you know, in all of these auction situations, but I also wonder whether the composition of the ownership group is going to be important here, whether it's going to you know, really need to be a diverse ownership group, whether they're going to be former players in the mix, whether someone like Bezos could actually be involved if at the same time Amazon is trying to get more involved in uh, owning and rights and, and getting involved in the sports. Right. So I think it's this is going to be a very interesting one, not only from the what's the purchase price, but what is the composition of the ownership group? I think it'll be scrutinized a lot more than than other deals. Yeah, and you alluded to another important point that you know all the arctoses and areas management and all this sort of new sort of institutional money, P money, venture capital money sort of floating out there. And the rules again are structured in such a way that these players can come in in a way historically they've not been able to. Absolutely. And that, that's a very good point, Eric, which is, you know, in the NFL, if you're going to buy a you know $5 billion franchise like the Denver Broncos, you know, you really need to have enormous wealth because of the check that is required by that individual. Not to say you don't need enormous wealth, you know, in the NBA, but it is more realistic for someone to put together a group, to put together financing and to have, let's say, a former player or somebody who isn't worth $75 billion be the lead and control owner in an NBA franchise. And I think that really could be an outcome that we see here. Well, much more to come on that front. Again, this is going to be a fascinating process to play out here. But turning our attention from the NBA to the National Football League, we had a big deal come out here uh, overnight Thursday into Friday here where Apple has come in and they are the new halftime sponsor or the new sponsor of the Super Bowl halftime show. This, these are rights that were previously held by Pepsi earlier this year. They walked away from those rights and restructured their league sponsorship where they're going to be committing their marketing resources in some other areas. Well, Apple has come in. Deal is uh, reportedly uh, worth about $50 million a year over five years, so a quarter of a billion dollars. And they're going to sort of come in, and, and really one of the primary threads on this is that the NFL has had some grand ambitions to take the Super Bowl halftime show, which generally gets in the neighborhood of 100 to $110 million, million domestic viewers, really one of the biggest showcases in all of American media and American television content. And take this beyond just those 12 minutes and really turn this into sort of an annual showcase and with a lot of lead up content and so forth here. And by bringing Apple and its Apple Music streaming service into the mix here, that's a big step in that direction of where the league wants to take this showcase. Well, the first point that's pretty obvious is uh, Pepsi is a soda company and Apple is a music company, or at least a music and technology and entertainment company. So that's a good start in terms of leveraging this further. I think this is a great deal for Apple. When you think about the price that they're paying versus the amount of money they will make on new signups and subscriptions to the Apple Music Service, 
selling other kinds of music and entertainment. I think this is going to turn out to be an incredible investment for them. And I think, as, as you alluded to, for the NFL, this is going to be a way to expand this 12-minute uh, opportunity into something much bigger that's going to last a lot longer. And that's going to have all kinds of other commerce and marketing and promotion elements to it that we've never seen before. And for Apple, this really sort of extends what has really been a big year for them in terms of really sort of establishing itself with some sort of uh, incumbent assets in, in major North American sports. They obviously did the uh, the big streaming deal with Major League Baseball, and we alluded to their big game tonight with uh, with Aaron Judge and the Yankees. They did obviously did the landmark deal with Major League Soccer. Now they've got this uh big sponsorship deal with uh, with the National Football League that's going to yield a whole bunch of benefits, as you just outlined. And now we're sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop as to what's going to happen with Sunday Ticket. And they are still uh, said to be one of the major bidders on that asset. Roger Goodell has promised uh, uh, some uh, definitive conclusion on this deal, perhaps as soon as this fall. Apple could be in the very well in the mix on that as well here. So just a continuing drumbeat of of them sort of getting involved and in, in, in buying these sort of, uh, you know, tier one assets in the industry. Yeah, this is a, it seems to be a breakout year, Eric, for Apple and Amazon. We, you know, we talked earlier with our guest about the Amazon numbers on the yep. first Thursday night. We see Apple, as you mentioned, making some big steps. So for years, Apple and particularly Amazon had been dabbling around the edges in the sports space. This is the year, in my opinion, that all of that is really coming to fruition in a big way where you see Amazon with the exclusive package, you see Apple with the exclusive uh, MLS package, you see things like Super Bowl halftime, which are incredibly high visibility. And it seems like this is the breakout year for Apple and Amazon and these tech giants that were always talked about as, hey, when are they going to get into the mix? Well, I think 2022 is really going to go down as the year that, that we kind of hit a threshold on that. No question about it. And then just again, from the specifically to the halftime show, you were expecting some news in the coming weeks on who the act or acts they're going to headline this upcoming game in February in Phoenix uh, for Super Bowl for the 2023 Super Bowl, uh, who they're going to be. And this is going to be another one of those situations where for the reasons you just described, you sort of put the marketing muscle of Apple and Apple Music behind whoever this artist announcement is going to be. And the artists own social media channels here that there's a real groundswell that's going to be building up here to drive interest around this event. Yeah, I don't I mean, the, the, the NFL, I don't think ever had difficulty getting artists to perform at Super Bowl halftime, given the showcase. But I think there's going to be even more incentive from an economic standpoint for artists to participate this year because there is going to be probably even more linkage to the sale of music, the sale of subscriptions, the sale of things related to that artist. So it was already a very attractive opportunity for an artist. Now it becomes even more attractive. At the same time, I think the pressure on the NFL and Apple to find somebody who is just larger and larger than life and keep outdoing yourself for these acts that that does get tough, but I'm but I'm sure they'll find a way to do it. Yeah, although it's interesting, there have been a number of key uh, artists who have sort of said no for a long time until they said yes. And Bruce Springsteen certainly comes to mind where he said no for many years until he finally said yes. Taylor Swift is another big name out there. She said no for many years. And I think part of that was a sponsor conflict uh, when Pepsi had the rights before but now with apple coming in you know if they can land somebody on the stature of a taylor swift 
again, this is just blows this thing to a whole other level of prominence. Yeah, I, look, it, I mean, we've we've come a long way. I mean, again, you know, 25 years ago, there was still Michael Jackson. Then about 15 years ago, there was Prince, Madonna. There have been big acts and it has been a big cultural event. But as you recall, Eric, there was a time at which there were some other networks kind of almost programming against halftime that were right. creating the, the, this bowl or that bowl to sort of encourage people to kind of turn away from the halftime show. Now, <laughs> that doesn't seem to be happening at all. And in fact, even more energy is going into this into the showcase. So again, the addition of Apple is going to even heighten that further. Much more to come on that front as well. But now turning our attention to the National Hockey League, we're getting ready to start another new season. The 2022-23 regular season starts on October 7th. And it's a situation where after, you know, really three pretty challenging years with a lot of uh, turbulence in and around managing COVID and so forth. This is a situation where there's a lot of wind at the backs of the, uh, the National Hockey League. And as we're taping this, I was just a, an event uh, last night with uh, Foley and Lardner, the law firm hosted that uh, included the commissioner of the NHL, Gary Bettman. And he spoke at length about what did been facing uh, these last three years and that there was just, uh, you know, a lot of spinning plates involved in terms of trying to manage the health situation, manage a league, deal with the temporary realignment that they did, work out all the labor issues with the NHL Players Association, while at the same time trying to manage all their special events amid the chaos and do a new set of domestic media rights. Well, all that's been settled. They've got labor deals in place. They've got domestic media rights in place here. And this is a situation now where there just seems to be a lot of things really in place for this league to really accelerate its trajectory. You're right, Eric. Uh, you know, they had all of those issues. As you mentioned, they had questions about whether they were going to participate in the Olympics. They were hit hard by COVID, by restrictions in and around Canada and travel. So, you know, as much as any other league, they really did face those challenges. Now with the new media rights deal, which seems to have worked out very well in year one, we'll see what year two looks like with stability around ownership, with stability around the commissioner's leadership. The question for me will be, well, what is the NHL take on next? Are there other things now that they've got all of those basic pieces in place that they spend more time on? Is it, you know, new areas like, you know, betting, which they've done some work in? Is it the, these new patch deals and sponsorship opportunities? They got a new NFT deal with Sweet. Well, you know, where do they go now, given that they have, you know, most of the major pieces in place? You know, the one, the one sort of cloud for all these major leagues is the the RSN situation, which I'm sure yep. we'll talk about a bit. But for the most part, I, I think, you know, it's pretty smooth sailing for them. Yeah. And you've got a big anniversary coming up that uh, Gary Bettman is going to be hitting 30 years of uh, his commissionership uh, early next year. And he was asked about this. It's this event that I was uh, at. And his answer was interesting that, you know, he just, you know, yes, it's an anniversary, but he really tried to make sure that it's not about him, that, you know, what's sort of been a guiding star for him is just really keeping his focus on the constituent stakeholders of the league, whether it be the teams, the owners, the fans, the corporate partners, media rights holders, and so forth, and really just trying to be very engaged and very transparent with all of those relevant stakeholders you know, it's allowed them to sort of withstand all of these challenges and not just the COVID period that we've discussed here, but, you know, several bruising labor battles before that, 
you know, individual franchise situations, bankruptcies, those kinds of things. There's been a lot of sort of ups and downs on these 30 years. But again, he survived and thrived through all of that by sort of keeping his head attuned to that North Star. It, it is remarkable. I, I don't know, Eric. I think Gary may be the longest serving commissioner of a major league. Is that 30 years? Is that longer than anybody else has served as a commissioner in one of these leagues? I'd have to research that, uh, you know, uh, across all the major leagues, but, uh, you know, it's certainly up there. Yeah, it seems it seems like it. And again, as you point out, there have been ups and downs. There have been labor issues, uh, you know. They lost a whole year in 05. Yeah, and, and and Gary himself, you know, he goes on the ice and sometimes uh, takes a few boos as, right. he, uh, as, as he goes out there from fans. But he's done a great job overall. And I think, again, the league is well positioned. Having said all of that, you know, there is a looming recession, which does affect Uh, leagues like the the NHL, which are gate-driven, which are local sponsorship-driven, which are local TV-driven. So there are still challenges ahead, but but he's not dealing, you know, he got his media deal done. He's not dealing with a Sarver-type issue right now. So in general, I think they're really looking forward to dropping the puck and getting it going for this season. Yeah, and I think one of the big opportunities slash challenges going forward is taking some of their top talent and really try to turn them into you know, mainstream stars, uh, you know, on the level of a LeBron James, Tom Brady, Aaron Judge, you know, fill in the blank here that they've got some remarkable talent that, I, you know, may not necessarily be at that level. But we've got a situation and I'm thinking of something like an Alex Ovechkin. And we've sort of talked about that in the past and, you know, some of the political issues given his Russian heritage and everything. But he's still potentially a couple of years away from breaking the NHL's all time goal record here. And then you know, and much as like we're talking about with Aaron Judge and potentially setting an American League home run record, you know, those sort of milestones drive a lot of mainstream interest. And, you know, if we get to a point where Ovechkin is really knocking on the door of Gretzky's goal record, you know, that could be something, again, that the NHL can really use to expand the tent. Yeah, there's always a question, Eric, of how much of those breakout stars are driven by the league and the league office and the league marketing people versus driven by the individual talent versus driven by some sponsor that does some really cool creative ads. There's some kind of quirky mix of all of those things things that goes into making stars. And and there's not necessarily a concrete formula, but I agree that they, they could benefit from having more breakout stars beyond sort of the hockey audience and into more mainstream. And, And so that is something probably to focus on. Also internationally, they have, made some efforts there and, and particularly in Europe, I think there's a game in, in Prague this year and there's yep. other, you know, games and exhibitions being set. So I do think they have some upside internationally, which, which maybe they'll focus on as well. Well, much more to come and it's going to be uh, another exciting season for sure with the NHL. But as we come towards the end of another episode of sport business finance weekly, as always, we like to do a bit of a look ahead and see what else is catching our eye in the space. And Chris, I will start with you. Yeah, there was an announcement, uh, Eric, this week of another sports fund, a $50 million fund led by Arnie Reese and David Abrams. Arnie, I have known well over the years. Arnie was formerly at Sport Radar. He had been at ESPN. He had been at UEFA, again, longtime industry veteran. They are focusing on sports tech and related businesses. We'll find out more about their specific mandate as we move forward, maybe even try to get Arnie on the podcast but the, the bigger point for me is, despite the tough economic conditions 
the money pouring into sports and sports investment just continues. And I think that's a good sign for, for all of us in this industry. Yeah, this really strikes me very much along the same uh, thesis that we described vis-a-vis Aries Management last week, that there's a lot of this institutional money that could go in a lot of different directions. And you know, for a lot of very compelling reasons, they're picking sports. And even though this is getting to be sort of a bit of crowded space and, you know, Arctos and a number of other firms out there, that there's still a lot of deals out there and a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And I think, Eric, as we've talked about in the podcast, because there is, it seems to me, unparalleled disruption going on in sports. Maybe it's always that way, but it just seems with what's going on with the streaming world and some of the new tech players with some of the innovation happening, even in the youth sports space, that this is a time of, of pretty dramatic change. And so it creates some opportunities that investors want to take advantage of. Yeah. And from my standpoint, I'm keeping an eye on Ted Lasso. This is the, the big hit series on Apple TV+. Plus. Makers of Ted Lasso did a really interesting deal this week with EA Sports, uh, the video game developer and the makers of the FIFA soccer franchise, soon to be uh, rebranded EA Sports FC. Well, uh, the Ted Lasso character himself, portrayed by Jason Sudeikis, and a number of the other sort of IP from that show are going to be playable content in the game. So you can play as AFC Richmond. You can have Ted Lasso as your manager in the game. You can have Jamie Tart and all the players on your team. And it's a real sort of intersection between sort of pop culture and sports and gaming that, you know, EA Sports has really sort of branded itself on realism and its simulation games. And they've got obviously the famous tagline, it's in the game. Well, this is something in the broader game. This is not the sort of the real life game, but, you know, one of football culture. And it's really kind of the start of what I expect to see as we get sort of closer to season three of Ted Lasso. They're still in production and we're waiting for some news on when that release date is going to be. But as they get closer and Apple TV and, and uh, Apple TV Plus and Apple itself does more in sports, as we've just discussed, I expect more of these sort of intersections between and, and cross promotion and cross marketing between the show itself and sort of the traditional elements of the sports industry. There, there is always an appeal, Eric, of this combination of entertainment and sports, and it kind of cuts two ways. On the one hand, it, it sort of broadens the potential audience, creates a lot, lot of excitement and a lot of sizzle. And again, we've seen that in the past, whether it's shoe companies, whether it's you know, other kinds of media companies kind of combining those two things. The other side of the argument is there's a, an authenticity being true to the sport uh, view of the world as well. And so, again, Brands take different strategies around that. Some shoe companies are willing to have non-athletes be endorsers, and some shoe companies only want athletes. Similarly, in this in this world, the question becomes: Does does adding these entertainment elements just broaden the base and make it really exciting, or does there become some authentic authenticity question again? Not specifically about this program, but just more generally that that marketers need to think about. But very exciting time for for those kind of opportunities. Yeah, and and people just love this show, and obviously yeah. that just raises the stakes for you know what season three is going to look like once it finally comes. But uh, you know, interesting stuff yet to come here. So. But that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.